This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, radiotherapists, and welcome to this Sunday's edition of Radiotherapy. I am Dr Doolittle, and you are listening to 3RRR. On today's show, we're covering a lot of ground, as usual, you might say. We're joined by a special guest, Two special guests, in fact, Chelsea Rouge Serrett and Joey Lynch from Canteen Victoria. Canteen is our national organisation dedicated to helping young people who have been diagnosed with cancer. Cancer in young people seems probably too horrible to contemplate, but we're going to hear about what Canteen does to support young people and their families. And we also have our usual range of news and views. Three of our regular panellists have dragged themselves out of bed on this actually beautiful day. And let me tell you, they look pretty sharp. (laughs) They're dressed up to come to Brunswick. Dr Trainer Wheels, our resident medical student, is here. She's obviously been thinking about winter and the cold because she sport a story about cryotherapy, using cold temperatures to treat illness. This sounds counterintuitive to me, given that the biological response to most illnesses is fever, but I'll hold off my judgment until we hear what she has to say. And also on the panel is our resident journalist, Dr Gonzo. He's asking the question, can technology hijack our minds? For some of us, that boat might have already sailed, but maybe he'll also furnish us with a solution. And finally, Dr Panelbeater multitasking on both the panel, making sure you can hear us, and on the mic, keeping us honest, which is code for he didn't bring in a story and he's just going to speak when he wants to. Um, <laughs> let's hear a little bit of Doctor Doctor. Doctor Doctor, give me the news, I got a bad case loving you. No pills gonna kill my ill, I got a bad case loving you. Am I being too harsh on you, Dr. Panelbeater? No, no, no. No, not at all. Not at all. No, it was a quite a week and... Um a quieter week. If it's a quieter week, you should have time to read the story. If it's no. a busy week, you have. Yeah, that's when you under. I uh, need to enunciate better. Don't I? It was quite a week. Oh, <laughs> Ooh, you're feeling quite it, are you? It was far oh. from a quiet week. In fact, that's the uh, that's the reasoning for a lack a hey, scatterbrain. Hey, I never bring in anything. Nah. I never do anything. All <laughs> I do is come in and just um, and just get Gas the reflected bag. glory off all the work you guys do. Trainer wheels. How are you? Very well. Very well this morning. Are you on uh, uh, on school holidays? I am I know on it's not school, school holidays. But, yeah. I call it school. Yeah, I'm so pleased just to chill be on out. holidays. It's nice. <laughs> Relaxed. Nice. Yeah. Well Rumor rested. has it you're up uh, north in Broome. I was. Yes. Oh, was Had a sunny? lovely holiday up there. It was so warm. It was divine. Oh, don't rub it in. And Gonzo, <laughs> Sorry, how are you, man? Good, good. Are you on school holidays too? You, or have you finished uni? You've finished uni. No, I've still got the one semester left, so I'm right. on school holidays now, yeah. Oh, last time. Uh, Yes, that's it. How long have you got? I just like to. Hear. I know. I know exactly how long you got because my son's at the same uni. But I just want to, you know, pick on you and basically hang a little bit of crap on you. How long have you got? Five weeks, haven't you? That's correct. Oh, as in for Holidays. my break? Oh, five weeks. Yeah. God, that's so oh, good. That's nice. <laughs> what do you What do you get, Doctor Trainer? Wills? Two. I'm halfway through, so I got one more. I remember yeah. when I started med school in the good old days when it was just like a six year course undergrad, all undergraduate. Mm. You started off with the full on holidays mm. where you had you know the like long expanses, and each year they knocked off about two weeks till by the end you're just like you're at work and you got yeah. to four weeks yeah, off. it's pretty mean. What rubs it in for me is about this time when the students are out of class and they send me an email for whatever reason. And <laughs> because you work in the that? And it, it'll, be, it'll begin with, hope you're enjoying your holiday. Oh, <laughs> so uh, rude. And this is just We're as a mug. 
Which <laughs> this is just as I'm marking essays. So. I make a little note. <laughs> yeah, which student sent that? Minus two marks. Hey, uh, Dr. Gonzo, yes. you have a story about technology hijacking our minds. I do. Tell us. Well, short story is it does. <laughs> so maybe we can end the story Okay, there. move on. Cryotherapy. <laughs> yeah, keep going. But yes, um, technology, well, all the best technology, or at least the most successful ones, are the ones that are modelled toward human behaviour. Um, so it's nothing novel in that regard. Um, but to focus um, more on new technologies like our smartphones, for example, which is uh, defining the 21st century, uh, we're yep. spending... Uh, on average, um, you know, excess two, two, oh, one to two hours uh, per day on these things. Um, which that's actually... That's less than I would have thought. It's yeah. less than me, definitely. <laughs> oh, I'd be a three-hour Well, in terms of checking up on these things, it's hundred. Yeah. the average person uh, in the Western Hemisphere is about 150 times per day we're checking on these things. And that's, so, just, and that's yeah. just Tinder. And that's, that's <laughs> Tinder. Well, there's a whole, there's a whole suite of apps. Um, I'm just checking it now. <laughs> Anyone nearby? <laughs> <you like? laughs> Sorry, yeah, keep going. But, well, and Tinder is a good example of um, the way in which these applications are designed to reward certain behaviour. They, yep. they do play with um, our psychology um, in many respects. So um, social media, for example, um, studies that came out um, uh, recently shows that it actually uh, affects your brain in a similar way as cocaine or sex or a nice plate of food as well. It releases dopamine in the brain. Um, <laughs> you know... That's talking about addiction, isn't it? The same addictive pathways? Yes, that's so correct. in what ways is social media addictive, for example? Um, so ways include now Twitter, for example, which yep. I'm, I believe you're on as well. Yep, um, I tweet. Although I don't like Twitter, I've gone off it, but yeah. It's, well, a, bit, it's a bit demanding, Twitter, yeah. isn't it? It's too complex. It is. For my simple and brain. A lot of information as well, but the way in which these uh, applications are designed is to reward you with certain information. So an app like uh, Twitter, for example, when you receive a notification... Um, you don't necessarily know what the, you know, the notification is when you see that bright red yep. um, you know, mm. bubble that yeah, comes up. Thing, you know, it could be anything yeah. from you know, a useless tweet that you have you know, no idea about or it could be something hilarious from Donald Trump. It could be that, you know, that girl, <laughs> that, that, that girl or boy or that you've been eyeing Donald on. Trump. You know, <laughs> I'm about to bother you. Important. I bet you he tweets that yeah, one day. Actually. Yeah, You're Australia. <laughs> Put up your umbrellas. You've got 15 um, minutes. Yeah. So, you know, because the catch cry from the gamble, you know, from addiction research for years has been intermittent positive reward. That's correct. That's what makes things the most addictive. So, exactly. pokey machines, you know, and the more variable mm. the reward, like mm. pokey machines, it can be anything from 20 cents to $100,000 mm-hmm. and it's got to be intermittent mm-hmm. and they're the two features. The more variable, the more inter- the more you can make it intermittent and variable, the more people get addicted. I think I read somewhere too that it's sort of hijacking the same brain pathway that was used in hunting that made hunting feel rewarding. Is that something you've come well, across? Intermittent. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, same thing, right? Because you're searching for stuff and sometimes you're successful. That's what so I tell we're myself. all just cavemen, aren't we? Although, you know, <laughs> though, of course the hunters would argue that there was also the evolutionary need to be fed because they couldn't yes. go to supermarkets <laughs> to the same degree we can. No, but you're, you're on a right track there, Trader Wheels. Um, so when we access these apps or email, for example, when we're hunting for information, mm. um, notice you have to go through, for Facebook, for example, you've got to go through your news feed. And when you go through your news feed, you've got this bottomless pit of information and autoplay. So 
you know, you went on to check on a message, but all of a sudden you're on, you know, you're looking at mm. funny videos and it's yeah. endless. So it, it well, certainly like, feeds into that behaviour. Yes, that's like that phenomena where, you know, they have, they suck you into coming to the store mm-hmm. and then they do various stunts to keep you in the store. Yeah, but yes. they put the veggies at the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, a loss leader. They sell mm-hmm. one thing cheap, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. they're going to make a loss on it just exactly. to lead you into the store so that you mm-hmm. um, um, get other things. What about the social side of it, you know, all the social approval? and stuff like that. Mm. Well, that's why we use them in the first place. So um, getting that social validation um, uh, on all our posts and all the content that we've put up is very important. So it, it's a reward mechanism. Once mm. we receive those likes and those comments, we receive that validation. You know, another way I think it's addictive that's not so much about apps, it's the social relationship of messaging. Now, Mm if I'm in a conversation with someone or say I go to dinner and someone's really shitting me, they're just being a pain in the bum, they're maybe being rude or whatever, I can always walk out. But with apps and with messaging these days, they can bombard you Mm. and... um, you know, and, and you can sort of not escape it. You can mm. leave the conversation, you think, and you can say, I don't want to discuss this anymore, but they can bombard you. They can just keep going <laughs> yeah. as long as they like. And so, you know, my st- trick for that, and the same with the notifications, is, you know, to I turn off my notifications because I'm, I'm a shocker. I, I reckon I'd be, I've got an addictive personality, I suspect, because if I've got that little number on Facebook or something that says, you know, 12, you yeah. know, this 12, I'll open it. So well, I turn off all... do little 12 notifications. Wow. I was, I was, I was, I was yeah, I know, 12. I've got 12. <laughs> oh, you've got practice of resistance. <laughs> well, I turn all the notifications off because otherwise I see them and I open them all the time and I feel like I'm being guided by my phone. Are there any ways we can avoid it other than turn the notifications off? Well, in terms of embedded in the in the design, no, um, at this stage. I mean, What's you, sort of the purpose, right? That is the purpose. Um, it is, you know, the purpose is to keep you, you know, coming returning to the app, to keep yep. you searching. Um, so there are, within the settings, you can switch your notifications off, but that that in turn means that you're kind of blocked from what's going on. So, um, which again, that kind of fear of missing out and ensuring that you're keeping abreast with information and what yep. your mates are getting up to, uh, it's kind of counterintuitive to how the app's designed mm. in the first place. I think mm. we'll get better though, because I think we're in a phase of what I would call new technology. It's like new money, you know. Yeah. When people come into money, they often stuff up for the first 20 years till they get good at being rich. New freedom. When people have come from um, uh, uh, political or, you know, geographical climates that have no freedom when they come to a new place, they often splurge on the freedoms and get themselves into trouble. I reckon we're going through a phase of new technology for a couple of decades where we're struggling to understand it and a lot of us are doing stupid things and mm. people are going overboard and making mistakes on it. Um, you know, but I reckon I'm hoping in a few decades we'll get sorted. I was just going to say, so I tried the um, turning off the notifications but then what I found I was that the psychology for me was that I then uh, developed uh, like this looking for surprise. So I knew that there was no notification telling me that there was anything there, but, oh, but I knew maybe. there would be something there. Yeah, I got so, check. so I would still go and check, you know. Um, so the notification wasn't going anywhere. But you were um, starting to talk about the social aspect of things. There's the what's going on, but there's also the... Um, I want to be able to participate in the conversation mm. if I bump into such and such mm. in the hallway. And yep. around a university campus, you're always bumping into people and somebody, oh, did you hear that thing just happened? Or, you know, and if you're using Twitter for professional purposes, you know, somebody's just published a paper or somebody's just um, mm. picked up on a news item or something like that. You want to, you, fear of missing out, you want mm-hmm. to be able to participate, don't and you? And you sort of need to. You know, it's, yeah. mm. um, you know, it's look, hard to function um, without it. Well, face-to-face communication is still the dominant paradigm, but yeah. this is sneaking up bloody fast. Mm. I wouldn't know who's having a birthday party or 
you know, what event's happening next week if it wasn't for social media. Oh. People don't tell you anymore. In person. And that's despite the fact that I put the cake emoji on their page <laughs> on their birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday to my sister for yesterday. Uh, so you brought it up. Hey, uh, thanks for um, thanks for telling us about how technology can hijack her mind. We're no going to move doctor. quick because we've got some great guests coming in. But I want to hear about cryotherapy. Mm, it's interesting. Trainer wheels, yeah. cryotherapy. Yeah. So it's a bit of a fad at the moment, this whole body cryotherapy thing. So what it involves is... Um, getting into either a kind of tank-type situation or a room with very, very cold air, like like minus 100 degrees. Very minus cold. 100? Minus 100. Really cold, right? You're and, you're st- and you're just in your underpants too. Wouldn't that be Don't. dangerous? Wait a second. Well, anyway, keep going. Yeah. No interruptions. In <laughs> I always do this. The boys in the room the are shriveling up <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you stay there for a few minutes, sort yep. of between two and four minutes or something, in your underpants. I'll just repeat that. I can't think of anything more awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that it, it triggers a number of physiological responses that promote good stuff uh-huh. happening in your body. Yep. So there are a number of claims as to what this cryotherapy can achieve, and some of them are pretty bold. Things like weight loss, reducing inflammation, optimising brain function, which I think is interesting. You know, how do you measure an optimal brain? I don't know. <laughs> oh, you just look at me and compare <laughs> everyone else to it. <laughs> okay, that's complete. Another line. me. Yeah. Um, you can improve your immune function, improve your sleep quality, okay. increase anti- antioxidants, activity, increase your athletic performance, increase collagen production, um, increase your rate of metabolism. Did I say that already? Um, so there's a lot of claims. There's a lot of claims. And I would have thought it slowed metabolism. That one surprised me. I know. Me. It's weird, isn't it? Some of them are a bit counterintuitive. So like, how can it reduce inflammation yeah. and improve immune function? Because inflammation is immune function. Yeah, except there's other aspects to immune function. So, yeah, I mean, I could think yeah. of some... It's counterintuitive, but, uh, you know, inflammation is only one aspect of sure, the immune sure. response. Yeah. yeah. Um, it seems like the, the um, apparent science behind this is... Um, it, it reckons that being in cold air like this for a while um, stimulates your sympathetic nervous system, which makes sense, right? Because your body thinks you're freezing to death. Yep. So you'd have a bit of a fight or flight type response to mm-hmm. that um, and that's what triggers all these benefits have they got any science behind it? well they, they claim to what i could find was the the evidence in inverted commas was um <laughs> a link to this 20 page report which i wasn't able to access the report itself without becoming a member of this particular website so i didn't do that but um Sucker. The, <laughs> <laughs> but this report which was not in a scientific journal type framework it, yeah. it, it didn't seem to be as, as you know robust pictures. as we'd like mm-hmm. um but it it talked about um increasing noradrenaline in the brain fivefold i don't know how you measure that i don't know if that's good uh, i don't know either <laughs> i mean i know how you measure it but i don't know if it's good and i find it hard to believe um sure. yeah but mind you that's the nature of science you know science begins with ideas and sure, things that people have noticed and then it um, goes to some sort of research project that's done in a particular lab then it gets noticed and gets done in other labs other countries and it gets tends yeah. to be you know trials that look at things like placebo controlled trials and large numbers of people and it builds up a body of knowledge over time and the quality of the evidence increases this sounds like it's at early it sounds like it's mainly testimonial stage that's true lots there of people was... thinking this is a good idea but not a lot of evidence yet would that yeah, be fair yeah that's true yeah i mean there was a bit of evidence that i was able to find there was one large scale systematic review um 
um, testing whole body cryotherapy in whether it reduces post-exercise muscle soreness. Well, that's incredibly common. You see the footballers down at the beach in winter. Exactly. You see them jumping into ice baths. Um, whenever they get an injury, we do um, RICE, which is yes. R-I-C, rest, ice, compression and elevation. Yes. Um, that's our standard thing for, you know, if you get an, uh, an, a joint injury uh, at sport. Sure. There wasn't anything that compared this whole body cryotherapy, so the extreme cold for a few minutes, uh-huh. as opposed to the sort of ice bath or, you know, cold swim type situation, which is nowhere near as cold as that. Um, but in, in terms of comparing with placebo, there was some low quality evidence that it might reduce post-exercise muscle soreness, but it was pretty low quality. And um, the conclusion was that, you know, as with everything, there needs to be more studies conducted before we can decide whether it's whether there's good evidence or not. Um, but in terms of the ice bath thing, I think it's interesting to to work out whether that actually works too. You know, everybody does it, but I, I don't know if it works really. I did a quick look. Um, and Where'd you look? Cochrane? Yeah, I had the a look Cochrane, Cochrane reviews yeah. for those who most people will know this, but yeah. uh, that's like the probably the first body that ever started putting all the evidence in one particular spot. There's now Large a whole lot of other things. So that all these big studies and they yeah. put them there so you can figure stuff out simply. Yep. And that's where the whole body cryotherapy one was, where they said there wasn't enough evidence. In terms of ice baths, though, I wasn't able to find good quality evidence for that. It was mainly testi- testimonials, as you said. So I mean, people these... saying, oh, I don't feel a sore. There's so many of these things around sport, you know, sporting... <laughs> traditions and habits and treatments that, uh, you know, are still being sorted out, you know, because another one's like stretching before sport. Mm. You know, is it good or is it not? Mm. Hey, um, that's fascinating stuff. So we better watch this space. We're in the right town right now to um, get a feel for it. That's right. Yeah, it it's cold damn, enough outside anyway. It was damn cold. I drove in from Rye this morning and, you know, I, I left quite early and, uh, you know, they had all the smog between the hills as you were mm. driving. And some, when I was on the sort of the higher spots, not that even that's quite a flat drive, you know, there was beautiful cloud cover overhead and all the smog within yeah. the hills between. And it sort of looked like a mirror image and it felt mm. like oh, wow. I was driving. Mm. It was really cool and I was feeling quite cold. So that's probably why I'm quite energetic mm. and healthy now. It it's be. probably the cryotherapy. Can I also throw out a big thanks to Dr Gonzo for coming in and telling us about how technology can hijack your mind. He's uh, rushed off to another breaking story somewhere around town. He's, he's basically like, you know, Batman to crime, Gonzo to some breaking story. He's gone off. Some story's breaking, he's there. He's there. He's going up, you know, what, where, when, where, how, whatever all the journo things are. <laughs> anyway, you're on 3 Triple R. It's 10.25 in the morning. It's cold outside, but we've got some special guests. Now, joining us in the studio are two very interesting people. Chelsea Rousseret is a state manager of um, Canteen. She has a background in education and she's been working with Canteen for oh, quite a bit of time. She's going to tell us about it. And also with us is Joey Lynch. Joey is an ambassador. I think it's an ambassador for Canteen. He'll no doubt tell us too. And Joey has actually suffered cancer. So the two of them are going to give us a bit of a rundown. Hey, uh, g'day Chelsea. Good morning. Come closer to the mic. Thank Come you. closer. Um, it's hard when we're sharing mics like this this morning. So appreciate you guys coming in and uh, putting up with me and uh, the rest of us and our uh, organisation. Um, and Joey, g'day to you, mate. Yeah, g'day, how are you going? Good. Um, Chelsea, why don't you get the ball rolling and tell us about um, Canteen. Canteen, sure. Um, so we are a national organisation and Joey and I are um, representing Victoria this morning, but we work with 12 to 25-year-olds who have experienced a cancer diagnosis. So it might be their own, but also cancer in the family so sibling parent and also into bereavement so if someone in the family has passed away from cancer we're also there to support them so you support people who have got cancer people who are affected by young people who have cancer yep and what do you mean by support 
Um, anything from programs. So we do have a free counselling service, both face-to-face and online, um, individual and practical support, so whether or not they need to link in with a social worker for help at school, help with their emotional needs, um, whatever that looks like for them, um, and a whole range of things that they can explore, I guess, at Canteen. So peer support, online communities, information. information. the whole lot. Yeah. yeah, I do look at your website. And you're based, in, you're based opposite the Children's Hospital, aren't you? We are, yeah. I've never been into your offices. What are you on Flemington Road over there? We are. We're in a little townhouse and um, pretty accessible to the hospitals, which is great for us. But so you have drop-in as well. People we can drop into the building as well as drop into your website. That's right. Yep. What is your website, by the way? Better get that in straight away. It's www.canteen.org.au. And what do you do with Canteen, Joey? Um, so as you mentioned before, I'm an ambassador. So I've been a member of Canteen now for nigh on, so coming up to almost a decade now. It's been quite a while. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to be able to come out and do things like this, come out and represent the organisation and talk about what a fantastic job they do. But I've also been lucky enough over the years to rise up through the whole leadership structure that Canteen's got going on, empowering young people and giving them a bit of agency in their lives. And these days I actually also serve on Canteen Australia's board of directors. So, for some reason, they decided it was a good idea to put me on the board. <laughs> oh, wow. You would have had to do one of those courses in governance and all that sort of stuff, yeah? Yeah, all of that sort of stuff. You know, just because I'm a young person, I'm still expected to do all the things that board directors do. So, when I first got to see all the papers and everything I need to know, I, it was a very interesting experience, to say the least. I'm not going to claim that I'm the best at it, but I'm trying to learn as quick as I can so I don't get sent to jail or anything for missing a number or something like that. Oh, good on you. We know when you said to jail. Hey, now, of course, you came into... I, don't, I, I always feel uncomfortable when I say cancer industry, as if it's something weird, but Sounds you came cool, into actually. it, obviously, unlike a lot of us who are in, in that, you know, I, I, saw, I work in that industry now myself, unlike a lot of us, you obviously came in not by choice. Uh, do you feel comfortable telling us about your cancer? Mate, I'm a completely open book. So, yeah, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, Stage 3B, which is a cancer of the lymphatic system, basically almost, which plays an important role in the immune system and all, the, all that other jazz. Um, How old? I was 16 years old. So yep. I was, the way I remember it is uh, I was diagnosed on the um, Friday before Adam Cooney won the Brownlow medal. <laughs> I'm oh. a big Western Bulldogs fan, so I'm not and sure. And you're a sports fanatic too, aren't you? I'm very much a sports fan. Grew right. up in um, what I call football. Most other people would know soccer, but grew up in that entire world and big sports fan so I'm not sure whether Mr Cooney would appreciate me using one of the greatest moments of his life to mark my diagnosis date but that's how I remember it. You remember the day though Friday like do you remember like exactly what happened like being called who told you? Um, basically what had happened was I'd been sick for quite a while before I was actually diagnosed. Like cold. months? Uh, yeah, months really, just cold and flu-like symptoms. But I was a 16-year-old boy and you know how... So you're in what, about year... Yeah, finishing year 10. I right, was in year 10 yep. at the time. Playing sport? Uh, I was playing gridiron at the time. Gridiron? Yeah, down at Footscray. <laughs> Footscray with the Western yeah. Crusaders, yeah. Right. Um, but, yeah, because 16-year-old boys, you know, you can barely get them to do anything, let alone go and see a doctor. So I ignored it until it reached the point where I had a lump in my neck that was it looked like somebody had snuck in during the night and snuck a golf ball under my skin. Right, so golf ball-sized lump. Under, what, did you, what did you and your parents think was due to at the time? Um, interestingly enough, I actually went to a doctor a fortnight before I was diagnosed um, and was went to an emergency room and got sent home and was told it was nothing. Where was the lump? Can you point to where it was? 
Now, um, mm. can everyone in the radio see where he's pointing? Yeah. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's about um, three inches below your ear, directly below your right ear, because that is a sp- spot normally where we'd think it's pretty dangerous if you had a lump. Yeah, so first up, it was nothing, they thought. And then two weeks later, what happened? Well, two, two weeks later, I went to see a different doctor. Yep. Um, went through all the sy- sy- symptoms that I had, so cold and flu-like symptoms, lots of weight loss, you know, very tired. I had very bad night sweats. I would go to bed at night. I would literally have to change my sheets every single night. Night just sweats. Because I would mm. completely soak them through. Yep. Um, GP recognised the symptoms, referred me to a specialist out at Box Hill Hospital and was told that Friday that you need to be admitted and start some chemotherapy because you've got Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now, what did they mean by 3B? Uh, that's a stage of cancer. So I I had um, cancer in, I can't remember, it was quite a while ago, so you'll have to forgive me if I don't get the details entirely right, but basically it was in multiple locations throughout my body. So as well as being in the lymphatic system, it's mine had also beyond. spread to the spleen. I think there was some in my stomach and there was some in my chest okay. as well. Now, can I, again, you know, I want to go back to that question because this scares me more than anything. What was it like... You know, where, who was the one who first, when you first realised that this was serious or did it sneak up on you? Was uh, there a moment? Um, it, it snuck up on me. I wasn't the one that went, wanted to go to the doctor. I was forced to go to the doctor by my um, mother. Yep. So, um, you know, it snuck up on me. She was being a mother, as mothers want to do. She was very worried about me. So it just kind of snuck up on me. I was pretty much numb when I first got the news, actually. I wasn't sure what to believe or what to think. So I just kind of sat there and then, because I was diagnosed on a Friday afternoon, they wanted to admit me to keep me under for observation. But as you'd know, working in hospitals yourself, nothing gets done on a Friday afternoon Friday, in hospitals. I should, Friday, <laughs> Friday lunchtime till Monday morning is a quiet zone. Having, having, having said that, you know, just as an aside, I looked at the data, I saw the data recently about, you know, things that go wrong because people always say they go wrong after hours and at weekends. It wasn't actually nearly as bad as you think. Really? Anyway, side thing. So your mum would have found out first, did she? Or did they tell you together? She was in the room with me when I was told that I had, Cancer, yes. What was it like as a 16-year-old hearing that? Did you have a concept of cancer in your head at that age? Um, I did have a concept of cancer in my head at that age, but it was more just as a general umbrella term, you know. I would definitely not say that I wasn't aware of, you know, I knew lymphoma existed, but I wasn't sure, you know, what lymphoma was, you know. Like, at that stage, I guess I would have just known the big cancers, so to speak, brain, leukaemia, breast cancer, that sort of stuff. I didn't really have a concept of what lymphoma was, its survival rates or anything like or anything like that. So I guess Google got a heck of a workout over that weekend. So it would have snuck up on you. The reason I ask this is because I'm fresh from a seminar this week where I heard a couple of you know adults talking about their cancer and they talked about the moment of diagnosis. And they almost, to a person, not everyone, almost to a person said, the moment they said some phrase like, the test was positive, you've got cancer. That's the last thing they remember. But for an adult, it's sort of, I was thinking about this driving in this morning. For an adult, of course, cancer is about the closest you can come to facing your mortality. There's not many things where you hear where you, I have to think about the fact that I could die right here and now. And I was wondering as a 16 year old, do you have that concept in your head or is it something you gradually figured out over the next year? Um, no, I'd say that 
jumped up to me very quickly as well when I first heard it. I, I can remember actually a few, I can't remember all the details because it was a pretty traumatic time, but I do remember there was a little, in the reception area outside the doctor's office, there was a little couch and I actually left the room at that point, just, you know, like deferred all these decisions to my mother and just went outside yep. and just sat on that couch for about 15 minutes and just thought about stuff and you know death was made a pretty made up a pretty large portion of those thoughts does it still freak you out when you talk about it now like does it bring back the feelings still 10 years down the track or um i've had a lot of time to adjust to it really i've been in treatment pretty much i've i'm still getting a bit of treatment now actually so for pretty much eight and a half almost nine years there hasn't really been a point in my life where i've been cancer free so to speak so I've adjusted to it pretty well. I like to I like to think I've adjusted to it pretty well. So it's still going on. Maybe, you know, in a few years' time when I don't actually have to think about the right now and what cancer's doing right now, I might look back and have an emotional breakdown. But for now, I'm pretty good with it, I think. In, in that conversation where you were being told, his mum's alongside you and the doctors are, are talking, um, do you remember what if at all you asked at that moment like you know what were those first questions that were occurring to you so i asked if i could keep playing gridiron yeah right <laughs> yeah, yeah that is so appropriate for a 16 year old and then do you remember what those google searches were that you started doing you mentioned um i remember, first one was just hodgkin's lymphoma yep. um second uh, i can't remember all of them but i do remember one of them being hodgkin's lymphoma survival rates ah yeah right. so that was a very big one in my mind so looking at exactly and then trying to find interviews with people that had had it and mm. what did they do you know what can I do sort of thing I was very quickly on the front foot trying to figure out what can I actually do to maximize my chances of survival like I did discover you know I'm a big on sport I think it was Mario Lemieux the ice hockey player had suffered from Hodgkin's lymphoma I think John Lester uh -huh. who's now pitching for the Cubs who won a world series with the Cubs last year he had Hodgkin's lymphoma as well if my recollections are correct so I was looking for success stories mm. yeah, really. when it came to surviving lymphoma yep. Joey, you said, but you described yourself before as very fortunate quite a number of times, actually, when you talked about your involvement with Canteen and the opportunities you've been given there. I can't imagine feeling fortunate in a position like yours. I, and I don't mean any offence there, but as a 16-year-old getting a cancer diagnosis, it, it just sounds like the most unfortunate thing a kid could experience. How does it change your perspective? Um, yeah, it, um, it's definitely true. I mean, nobody wants to get diagnosed with cancer. I mean, I'm sure Chelsea would agree with me. If it was up to me and Chelsea, Canteen would not exist mm. because there wouldn't be any young people affected by cancer if, you know, there were no... No, it, Canteen, it's an organisation that I love, but it's an organisation that I don't ever want anyone to have to join mm. because that means that there's been a cancer diagnosis. But joining canteen i didn't actually join canteen immediately after my diagnosis i joined canteen um about a year and a half after diagnosis you know which might be coming a bit of a theme here at the insistence of my mother because <laughs> she saw that i needed the support because coming into my diagnosis as a teenager i also had a lot of battles with my own mental health mm. and dealing with that sort of stuff and i think i'm fortunate because i recognize what a bad place I was in even before my cancer diagnosis and then after the initial phases of treatment and after coming into canteen and I see how much I've grown as a person if you 
told me a decade ago, someone who had battled depression and social anxiety, that I'd be sitting in a radio show just openly talking about mm. all of this, I wouldn't believe you. And I've got, I'm have got i pretty firm in my belief that if it wasn't for the support from my peers in canteen, the support from the staff in canteen, that I wouldn't be able to do this. In fact, the mental strength that I've had to get through the very... There's been some very challenging times with the cancer and I don't think I might not have had the mental strength to deal with that if it wasn't for the support and the person that Canteen had built me up into. I just want to ask a couple of questions about Canteen. Chelsea, you might want to jump in. And then I want to come back a little bit more to some of um, your story, Joey. So how common is cancer in kids, um, Chelsea? Yeah, it's not super common, but um, one thing we do know is that adolescence and the young adulthood phase is super um, challenging in itself. And then when you throw a complexity like cancer in the mix, um, you know, the outcomes for those young people in terms of their mental health and life trajectory can be quite devastating. So um, I guess Canteen's research team has worked pretty hard to um, to look at the gaps and what the, the needs are of the young people that come through yep. the service. And, you know, what sort of things are they looking for that are going help them through that time and what can we do about that so you know while it's not super common it's there and it's a it's a pretty horrendous time to have something like that thrown in so you know we know the importance of support services and I guess Canteen has grown over the last 30 years um, to try and, and work as best we can to meet the needs of those people and ensure the best outcome so that you know down the track we've got people like Joey <laughs> that, <laughs> on your board you know, of directors yep. hey um do you have in your Head, you know, it, you say it's a difficult time to yep. get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there particular trigger points? Like, I mean, diagnosis is an obvious one. Are there other particular trigger points? Starting treatment, you know, I don't know. What are yeah. the times <laughs> when you really need to be on your toes if you're a young person with cancer? Um, I think it changes. In my mind, I, th- I see it, and the young people I've worked with, I guess I see it as a bit of a, a roller coaster that changes and, you know, changes direction. And we know that cancer isn't just a, um, a linear process and it doesn't happen in a, in a sequence that you can predict and, and, you know, just, you know, tick boxes as young people go along um, their journey. So, you know, cancer can hang around for years and years and, and things can change and they can shoot off in all sorts of directions. So I wouldn't say there's any particular time point but it's more about working with the young people where they're at and with what comes up for them at whatever point in time. And I guess that's where I see the importance in our work and, you know, we check in with them pretty regularly and, you know, the plan that we map out for them in terms of their individual support can change. So they might want to come on programs and and get that peer connection because cancer is extremely isolating and, you know, as humans we all value connection and um, peer support is tremendously important to an adolescent in particular. So, you know, the way that we shape the service really depends on on where they end up throughout their journey and, you know, we find that they might tap into some counselling, they might attend a camp, they might have a break, Mm. some respite from what's going on for them and then down the track like Joey, they might put their hand up for a leadership position and, and develop skills and, in a sense, give back to peers that they might have met through Canteen. I think you may have almost just answered my question, but Joey used the term I joined Canteen yeah. um, before, and but I imagine that means different things to different teens engaged with Canteen. Yeah. Could you just give a couple of typical relationships that different um, patients have? Yeah, definitely. So I guess um, we have a 
a somewhat joining process. So whether a young person gets on Google and comes across the canteen website and, um, you know, there's a, a section that says, I'm a young person or uh, get support. So they might read some information specific to their experience, whether it's their parent that's been diagnosed or whether they're a patient themselves and um, start fe- feeling their way through the information. And then there's a point where they can fill in some basic details and join an online community. So I guess in that way they can end up a member of, of Canteen and the, the community that we have or um, maybe in the hospital system. They've got a social worker that said, look, you're isolated, you need you need something, you need some connection with people who get what's going on um, and potentially they sign a form and end up on our desk and we can touch base with the family and offer some support and, and tailor, I guess, um, some service needs that we've identified through that meeting with them. And then, you know, they're on our Facebook group. They get comms and information about all the things that we've got going on at Canteen Victoria and they can tap into whatever support they want. So, right. yeah, it looks a bit different depending on how they come through the door. But sure. I guess once you're in the door, it's um, it's about finding out what's available to you and, and taking up what you can with where you're at in your experience. What did I want to ask? Look, this might be a bit tricky, but what was the... I mean, everything's hard, but I'm wondering what were the, you know, the bits that were toughest for you with um, having cancer Um, as a young person? There's two bits that really jump out, I guess, like maybe one emotionally and one physically. I think physically the toughest part for me... Well, there's been a number of Mm. physically tough parts, like when I got graft-versus-host disease and my body kind of stopped working for a while, I had to relearn how to use most of my limbs because it was so stiff but I think the worst part physically was when I think I think maybe three or four years ago now I had a tumor grow inside next to my spine so it wasn't on my spine but it was kind of like sharing real estate with it and that was probably the most painful thing that I've ever actually experienced in my life because I went in and it wasn't actually being picked up on PET scans I had to get an MRI to find it and once they found it there was it was late in the evening so I didn't have any answers so I was there in horrendous pain like there's a tumor pressing against what is basically a giant bundle of nerves in your back um you know I could barely function and because and I was also to in an attempt to relieve some of the pressure from that they gave me a lot of dexamethasone which is a steroid mm. but because of that I couldn't sleep that night so I stayed up all night in pain thinking about you know there's a tumor on your spine you're never going to be able to walk again because um, oh, they were horrible. they were putting me around and pushing me around in a wheelchair that evening. So luckily, I'm as you might have noticed when I walked into the studio this morning, I can walk. Um, I got radiotherapy for that. So that was probably the most physically daunting thing. Um, and emotionally, you said there was an emotional emotionally. Thing. I think recent last year I went to the United States to take part in a clinical trial using CAR T cells. Um, but prior, the reason I had to go to the United States to do that was because I, prior to that, I had exhausted all possible treatment options currently available in Australia. And normally when you've exhausted all possible treatment options and you still have cancer, that means you're going to die. So I spent quite a long while trying, either terrified, trying to come to terms with the fact that I was going to be die at 23, 24, 25 years old or trying to pretend that nothing was wrong and nothing existed. So that was 
a very that emotionally that was probably you know and I was trying to think and I wasn't just thinking about myself I was just thinking about you know I'm going to die and you know what it was going to do to my friends what it was going especially what it was going to do to my mother especially I think that was probably actually harder for me not what you know me dying wasn't so bad in my head but me dying and leaving my mother and having her to deal with that especially after she'd supported me so much was emotionally the hardest part of the entire thing your mum sounds like she's been a huge support for you through this whole time how did your family and friends cope with this whole process um well I think my family it's been very difficult for my family especially I think I mentioned before that I had a lot of battles with mental health prior to my diagnosis so I didn't actually have a lot of friends prior to diagnosis Mm. to be affected by it most of the friends I have these days I either made through canteen or the friends I see regularly I met post-diagnosis so they don't really know a Joey that didn't have cancer Mm. Um, but my family, I've got a younger brother as well. His name's Eugene. He's 23 years old, studying at Melbourne Uni, studying Latin, so he's very smart. Um, but he... But he can't speak to anyone. Latin. <laughs> <laughs> Back to... He's studying ancient Greek as well, so he can talk at me in two languages. I know. Are you sure he's smart? He can't talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 no. And so he was... Uh, he actually joined Canteen a few years after me. He went through he got support through canteen as well he actually rose up through our leadership pathway as well he was president of the victorian division uh, when i say president he was the chair of our local advisory group that our young people get together and get to have a say in how the victorian division is run he was the president the chair of that for two years um he got a lot of support with that um and i think my mother it's been difficult for her very very much so like she was in the room when I was diagnosed there's been many many times over the years where she had to start preparing for me to die there was one point in 2012 where I got growth versus host disease where I got rushed to the uh, ICU at the Alfred Hospital with a 42 degree fever Jesus the skin had completely there was no skin on my back anymore it had completely come off I had septicemia, pneumonia there was fluid pouring into my lungs and I was told that if I'd come in maybe three hours later I would have died so there's been times where she's had to watch that and just you know because she's not a doctor so she's just got to sit there and watch that and can't do anything so it's been very difficult for her but she's still here with me so I think and I've, I think what's helped with that is that I've been able to turn to things like Canteen for support so I don't have to dump all my emotional baggage on her. Obviously, I still turn to her for support because, you know, not in, you know she's my mother. She deserves to not get cut out. But if there's something that I really need, I have other ways to support. She doesn't have to carry the entire load, which has been very... I'm very thankful for being able to do that. When you're facing such dire circumstances, those scenarios, um, and perhaps I'm projecting a little here, so push back if it's different for you, um, I'd I'd be looking for anything that resembled certainty. Whatever that certainty was, I'd be looking for it. So that would then influence my relationship with the medical advice I was getting. You know, could I trust it? You know, but you said this, but somebody else seemed to say something different and all of that sort of thing. Were they experiences for you? Um, What I've tended to do... I. I had that in a, a little in the initial stages, but after a little while, I just realised 
these are these oncologists these hematologists those nurses they did go to medical school and you didn't <laughs> so you should probably listen to them i've been much probably to the chagrin of some of the people around me sometimes i tend to trust the advice of my medical professionals quite a lot i think there's some very smart people i think australia's got a magnificent health system and the doctors and nurses that i am fortunate enough to deal with are some fantastic people so i i wouldn't say i trust them implicitly because i don't trust anybody implicitly mm. really but i trust them and their judgment and i there are other factors of my life where i like like to take control and look after myself but mm. when it comes to medical decisions i'm confident I'm confident in the ability right. of the medical staff and I, tr I trust them. It took me a while to learn that trust, but now I trust them. I know that they know what's best for me. Chelsea, can I ask from Canteen's perspective, what do, do you actively engage the families and uh, you know, have programs for them as well? I think you mentioned you'd do at the start, didn't you? Yeah. What do um, you do? In terms of programming, we don't really, but I guess our view is that in order to support a young person in the family unit, you need to be there for the whole family. And quite often... Um, in terms of help seeking for young people, they, they often, like Joey, come through the door through their parents or, yeah. um, you know, they're not, they're not really alone in their experience. So... Um, I guess on a practical level, our psychosocial support staff that work with the young people that come through the door really have a, a family, um, a holistic approach with the family and do touch base with parents and, and also consider the support that we can offer to siblings if it is a young person that's diagnosed. Um, but we do work a lot with young people who have a parent that's been diagnosed too. So I guess in that circumstance, we're um, in direct consultation with the parent who's the patient themselves, but um, really asking the questions around, you know, what, what are the ages of the children at home? Can we support them and give them um, some information, some counselling, some practical support, whether it's at, at school or at, in the home, I guess, for those guys to be able to function better as a family? It's great. It's great work that you guys do. Joey, I want to ask you, I'm trying to think how to phrase this question, but you sitting there talking about your cancer, you know, you just do it so beautifully, yet your story's so trad, you know, so hard to listen to. It's, you know, just, so... I guess I want to ask, you know, you've had it for 10 years. I want to ask, what are you doing now? Because I don't, I'm sort of, what I'm trying to think is, you know, clearly you are a lot more than a person who experienced cancer. How have you come out the other end? What do you do now with your life? You know, what's going on, basically, I'm trying to figure out. Sorry for the vagueness of the question. No, not at all. Um, obviously, I'm still, I've had it for 10 years. I'm actually still, as I mentioned before, I'm still getting some treatment at the mm. moment. Every fortnight I go to the Epworth East and then get an infusion of PD-1 inhibitors, which are kind of giving my immune, like taking the brakes off my immune system, so to speak. Um, that's... That's led on from the clinical trial I was on in the US last year. Initially, it was looking like I'd have to go back to America to get that drug, but thankfully it became available in Australia um, so I can just get it done at the Epworth Eastern rather than fly to Philadelphia every fortnight. Sounds a lot easier. <laughs> yes. Um, so I guess outside, obviously, I'm still heavily involved in Canteen. Being involved in Canteen, it's an organisation which has given so much to me. Like I wasn't lying before when I say said... 
canteen, I think it probably has saved my life with the strength it's given me. So to be able to give back to that in whatever means I can, whether that's serving on the board of directors or coming in and talking about it on radio shows such as this, or even just interacting with the young people as well. I think interacting with the other young members is probably actually my favourite part about being in canteen, just being able to support them and use the lessons that I've learned throughout my journey to help make their lives better as well. It's something I love doing and it's something I love seeing as well, just other young people supporting other young people. I remember a couple of times on programs I've seen, because we not not only supporting patients but also offspring, I've seen one offspring of a young man that had recently lost his father and he was in a very bad emotional state and he was just sitting on his own in a corner of the room just with his thoughts and without prompting, without anything, a young girl came up and who had lost her mother and just sat with him and comforted him and made him feel wow. better and that was just watching that made me it's truly something that's incredible I, I couldn't see that anywhere else and it's make me makes, you know it's a privilege to be able to see it as well hey i can't um, tell you guys how much we appreciate you coming in to talk about it joey in particular talking about your experience and sharing it with others it's just um Oh, it's unbelievable to hear about it. It's, it's overwhelming in many respects. And uh, Chelsea, also, thanks so much for coming to tell us about Canteen. And can we hear Canteen's website one more time again you just because you guys are doing so well? <laughs> so it's www.canteen.org.au. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.